What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and there's a lot ahead this hour. St. Louis Fed President James Bullard says the Fed needs to front load tightening and its credibility is on the line. But one key data point just showed a little bit of breathing room on the inflation front, a teensy bit maybe. We'll look at the latest numbers and figure out what it all means for stocks as the Nasdaq and now the S&P has gone back positive. Plus, it's not just inflation. It's the supply chain that has struggled with overwhelming demand in the pandemic. We check in with one area that's been especially hot. The CEO of PGA Tour Superstore tells us how the shelves are looking now. And three names to watch as Omicron fades. Avis, Marriott, and Burger King parent restaurant brands are all set to report results. We have the action, the story, and the trade in earnings exchange. But first, let's start with these markets. And where are we right now, Don? A little bit of a different narrative from earlier this morning when we thought the Ukraine tensions, Kelly, right? All the Fed uncertainty was going to take the markets down. Well, we're actually seeing specks of green out there. The Nasdaq, generally speaking, has been pretty much positive all session long. But it's the Dow Industrials that are approaching session highs right now. We're not there yet, but we're getting closer. We're down one-tenth of one percent, 46 points, 34,000. 690 the last trade there. Just to give you a frame of reference, we were down 374 points at the lows of the session. So a big comeback for the Dow. The S&P 500 just about flat 4421 the last trade there. And the Nasdaq Composite 13,882 up 90 some points or about two thirds of 1%. But again, generally green, a lot more of a bid for certain technology stocks out there. Thematically speaking, there's one key part of the market that a lot of folks are focusing on right now. That is what's happening with the vaccine makers. We got news that Pfizer and its partner in the COVID vaccine, BioNTech, are going to at least delay a little bit their kind of pursuit of getting vaccinations for children under the age of five. So that's weighing on some of the vaccine makers out there. You look at Moderna, the worst performing stock in the S&P 500 today, just about 13 percentage points to the downside. Pfizer and BioNTech, you can see they're down about two and a half and nine percent respectively. And Novavax is down about 10 percent as well. Remember also a lot fewer people getting COVID now the, the trends have started to really improve. So some of that demand waning a little bit weighing on some investors as well. Vaccine stocks, certainly a focus. And then electric vehicle makers, specifically because of some regulatory filings that show that Soros Fund Management has taken a stake or at least did at the end of last year in Rivian Automotive. That sh- those stocks are up about 10 percent right now. Lucid Group is up 8 percent. Fisker up about 1 percent right now. Nickel up three and a half percent. And of course, the biggest one of them all, Tesla, up two and a half percent in trading. So watch those EV makers. They are catching a little bit of a bid. But the big caveat, of course, is over the near and medium term, there has been a lot of downside volatility. Kelly, for some of these names. Back over to you. A lot of spending on ads last night, too. Dom, thank you. All right, plenty of people are warning that the Fed should go at slow here and not tighten too quickly. But what if the bigger risk is that they don't tighten enough? Here's St. Louis Fed President James Bullard. He spoke with Steve Leisman this morning and addressed the need to act boldly and swiftly. The last four reports taken in tandem have indicated that inflation is broadening and possibly accelerating in the U.S. economy. So, I shaded up my position, uh, and I'm just one person on the committee, but I I shaded up my position to say I'd like to see 
100 basis points worth of uh, movement on the policy rate by July 1. So uh, our credibility is on the line here, and we do have to react to data. However, I think we can do it in a way that's uh, organized and not disruptive to markets. We're only removing accommodation, so it's still an accommodative policy as we go through these initial rate hikes. And joining me now is David Zervos. He's the chief market strategist at Jefferies. And Dave, I think you sum things up well right now and show how different an environment we're in when you say you think there's almost no downside for the Fed in acting aggressively here. What do you mean by that? Well, Kelly, uh, we talked about this the last time I was on. The housing market is on fire. We've got you know more job openings than people looking for jobs. We've got a 4% unemployment rate. The biggest political uh, complaint that's coming back to the Fed through through Congress is, is inflation. It's not jobs. It's not uh, difficulty with the real estate market. So those are really the two that usually come back to bite them when they start on a hiking cycle. So I think they've got a lot of runway, not to mention we just came off a near 30% up here for the S&P. Uh, many people think that may have been too frothy. It's hard to tell, but uh, there are just a lot of reasons why they can afford to go after this 7.5% headline number uh, and, and try to get it under control, even though the market, you know, much to the chagrin of those that have been bashing on the Fed, the market has got complete you know, faith in the Federal Reserve. Five-year, five-year forward break-even inflation, which is my favorite measure of Fed credibility, is unchanged over the last year. It still sits at 2%. That means the market thinks that in five years, inflation expectations will still be 2%. Right, so I, I think it's got a great lineup here to go strong. Yeah, and I think maybe the, the issue to show the urgency that you're talking about is to look at some of the shorter-term consumer measures of inflation. So this is what Goldman was writing about over the weekend. They're worried, if you look at uh, University of Michigan, one-year ahead expectations, New York Fed, one-year ahead expectations, those just came out updated this morning. They're still at 5.8%, and they're saying if that gets entrenched in a wage price spiral, that could make the Fed want to go 50 in March. Now, is a is a two-tenths moderation, you think, enough for them to say, no, we don't need to do 50, we can stick with 25? Well, you know, as I think you also know from a few of my recent discussions, I, I think they're going to be focusing a little bit more on the balance sheet than aggressive rate hikes. I think they don't want to be seen as chasing the rate market uh, with 50s and intermediate moves. 25s are, are fine, especially when the bulk of what they did to ease financial conditions during this last two years was the $5 trillion balance sheet ad. It wasn't the 175 basis points of cuts. That was right. a minor easing by, by historical standards. Typical recessions, you know, we, we cut by 500 or 600 basis points. So I think the balance sheet, and, and, and it was very but interesting. But are they going that route? Because as you've pointed out, you think they should do this? This is the way to have the most effect? It would almost be ineffective not to go this route? Esther George has talked about it, but I'm not getting the sense that the rest of the Fed is going to start, you know, aggressively draining it here. Well, I, I thought it was interesting in uh, Steve's interview this morning with, with Jim Bullard, where Jim sort of said, hey, I want to start moving on the pay downs fast, like immediately, which is not what's priced in, but could be a, an interesting add-on to the March meeting. You say, okay, all of a sudden, we're just going to stop reinvesting immediately. So that's one way to be a little more hawkish without doing a 50 and keeping a 25. The other thing is he, he said something very important. He said, we should have a plan B so that if by the middle of the year the data are not coming in the way we'd like them to, we can begin to open up for the idea of asset sales. And he said that specifically. Yeah. So I, I think, 
Look, it's there. It's lurking. Jay Powell did not take it off the table in either his testimony or his press conference, testimony for renomination or his press conference after the last FOMC. So I think that's the story of the next quarter to quarter and a half, Kelly, is how do they present the balance sheet to us? And sure. I think they make that a bigger tool. So in the midst of all of this, I think that it's worth going back to talk about why they need to move quickly at all. When even a Wall Street Journal op-ed the other day talked about the need for them to go it slow. The last cycle, err on the side of going it slow. You know, why is the calculus so different now? Because from Goldman's point of view, they're more worried that that 6%, 5.8% one-year consumer expectation becomes the five-year forward down the road if the Fed doesn't get ahead of this. Do you think that, that a scenario like that could play out? I think Jan and his team are, are, are spot on with that one. Um, I, I think that that is a worry. And you've got the credibility in the five-year, five-year. Don't lose it. You have a, a financial market that looks great. You have a consumer balance sheet that looks great, a corporate balance sheet that looks great. You have a housing market that looks great. You have an unemployment situation that is one of the, 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 the least negative. You have a, a strong employment situation. What, what's holding you back? And, and by the way, it may not be that the Fed itself is responsible for bringing inflation down over the course of this year. It may just come down because the supply chain disruptions uh, end. Why not be aggressive and sort of like at least wave the flag and say, hey, we did that. We were part of that. You know, we were part of the solution, not part of the problem, rather than wait it out. You just have too many free passes that you don't normally have to start a tightening cycle Very to be a little more aggressive. That's so the way I a final comment here, because you always bring this back to markets then, and I brought this up earlier, but if the 2010 Tepper formulation was either growth picks up or the Fed will come in and support the economy and either way stocks win, what's the formulation for today? Is it the opposite? Yeah, it's not our risk parity story that we've been pushing, and I know Dave's been a big fan of for, for many, many years as well, and he's made a fortune out of it. Uh, it's just not. The Fed is not your backstop here, as, as I think we've also talked about uh, in a recent uh discussion that the put strike where the fed comes in where the fed come where the fed kind of pivots dovish to bail you out of a bad situation is just a lot lower than it usually is it's not down 10 to 15 percent in the s p it's probably down 25 to 30 percent in the s p so that just makes that that trading strategy uh much less desirable to start this year um, and maybe we'll find a place, you know, by the second half of the year where that becomes an interesting trading strategy again. But at these levels where we are with the S&P just down seven or eight percent for the year and the rate market trying to catch its uh, sea legs in the face of a withdrawal of accommodation, it's not a, uh, a Fed bails you out kind of world yeah. that has worked great. Uh, and then, you know, our hobby horse here at Jefferies for, for over a decade in terms of risk parity. So, nope, not there. We're taking a very cautious approach, probably the least bullish we've been on the equity markets in the now 13 years that I've been writing here at Jefferies. Exactly. David, it's been great to have you here to run through all of this. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Kelly. David Zervos with Jefferies. Let's stick with the markets because my next guest is saying, do not fear. Embrace the volatility we're talking about. It can even be profitable. Joining me now is Chris Crisanti. He's the chief equity strategist at MAI Capital Management. We know volatility is good for options, Chris, but what would you say to people about sort of broad exposure to the market here? Hey, Kelly, it's nice to be with you again. Uh, I'd say a couple of things. First of all, I'd say volatility is scary. But it's also more normal. Last year was the aberration. We, we hardly had any volatility. Now we've got a 2% 10-year. We've got higher inflation. We've got 
Ukraine sitting uh, very vulnerable. So uh, it's a scary time, but I think it also can be profitable. It, it always sounds wiser to be pessimistic and a little bit dour, and I, I think David certainly supplied that just now. But but I would say it might be more profitable right now to to look at the things that are on the other side that we have going for us, and I think there's quite a few actually. Yeah. So, you know, again, I think that what to me is most striking about what we hear from Zervos or others is that that easy formulation of the past decade doesn't work anymore. And you can't just be long stocks because either the economy will be strong or the Fed will come in and support it. Now it seems to be, I don't know. I mean, you could kind of be long stocks if you think the Fed is going to get the inflation problem right, you know, and you and, and that kind of Goldilocks scenario. But that implies a lot between now and then. So where would you be? Sure. I think that's right. I think David's absolutely right in that that the the, the Federal Reserve safety net, the, the so-called Fed put, is really gone for, for all practical purposes, at least for the time being. But what is replacing that is an unbelievable, unprecedented amount of stimulus over the last two years, topping now over $5 trillion. We think that has primed an engine of economic growth that will really deliver this year. We, we think S&P earnings by the fourth quarter will be up 32% year over year. Now, part of that wow. is because these earnings are nominal and the higher inflation helps those numbers, but still that's an astounding amount. And, and if those earnings are up and the S&P grows into a more decent valuation, uh, I, I think that investors would be wise not to head for the, the sidelines at this point and to recognize that the market never peaks before rate hikes occur. It generally peaks in the middle of rate hikes, even if it peaks at all. I mean, the stocks that you like, names like Boeing and Disney, would say to me you can still hold the Dow, or for most people, you can still hold the S&P 500 and emerge relatively unscathed, maybe, from sure. all of this. You know, it's kind of trimming the tail risk of those really small, you know, very expensive stocks, things like that, different kinds of ETFs that are a little bit more exotic. Um, is that what this boils down to? I think so. I'd like to call it a Jerry Maguire market. Show me the money. So these companies, we've just had some terrific data points, and some folks like Disney last week uh, did show us the money, and some other folks like Facebook didn't, and and they each got the kind of uh, you know just rewards for that. So I would think that investors would be well served to do a lot of their homework right now. Not everything is going to go up, and there clearly are more headwinds than there were in the last couple of years. But having said that, I think it would be a big mistake to go to cash and think, oh, rates are going higher. This this uh, rally is over. Yeah, I don't think anyone feels good going to cash in a seven and a half percent inflation environment. It's just kind of a matter yeah, of, of which stocks to be in. Chris, thanks for bringing your ideas. It's great to see you today. You too, Kelly. Thanks. Chris Grisanti joining me on the market. Still ahead, the pulse of the reopening. Avis, the top transport stock over the past 12 months, its shares have more than quadrupled. Marriott, nearly half its revenue is tied to business travel. And Restaurant Brands International on pace for its fourth straight quarter of losses. We're going to get an update on BK, Popeyes, and a preview of all of these earnings ahead on Earnings Exchange. But first, the latest steps being taken to avoid a military conflict between Russia and Ukraine. We're back in a moment. 
Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's check on crude prices. Just under $94 a barrel today after hitting a fresh seven-year high that will keep putting upward pressure on gasoline prices. And as concerns linger about the Russia-Ukraine situation, palladium prices are also jumping up 25% in the past month, nearly half the world's supply coming from Russia. So let's get the latest on where things stand right now. Kayla Tausche standing by in Washington. Kayla? Kelly, there's a flurry of conversations today to avert war between Russia and the West as Moscow signals an interest in pursuing an outcome through diplomatic channels. This morning, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov met with Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, at a socially distanced table and told him the possibilities uh, to have Russia's securities demands met were not exhausted and that talks should intensify for now. Putin, according to the translations, responded all right. Now, it's unclear how permanent or fleeting this pause would be. Lavrov suggested the talks not extend indefinitely. And Reuters and CBS News reporting on U.S. intelligence that Putin wanted commanders ready for battle this Wednesday. And now Ukraine's leader is making Wednesday a national holiday in that country. But the uncertainty there has already taken a toll on its economy. Flights canceled, residents having fled, and diplomats relocated. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke with his Ukrainian counterpart and pledged more support from the U.S., including key financial assistance packages. President Biden speaking with the U.K. Prime Minister last hour. We are awaiting uh, news on how that call went. And Germany's chancellor visiting Ukraine and Russia as well this week. We are also going to hear from the Pentagon uh, later on this afternoon, Kelly. The Pentagon has already deployed troops to the region, and we'll hear from them shortly. What about the argument, Kayla, about sanctions, the way the potential package could be shaping up and the deterrent effect that may be having on Putin's behavior right now? Well, some of the sanctions that are under discussion on Capitol Hill, those talks had stalled, but the National Security Advisor is briefing members of Congress today on exactly where things stand in hopes that uh, some of that more classified information that the administration has not been able to provide publicly uh, would help bring those negotiators to a place where that sanctions package would move forward. Of course, the executive branch doesn't need Congress to be able to move forward with uh, the financial sanctions that it is packaging together, uh, but the the administration does want that unified bipartisan show of force and show of support as they try to present a united front with the broader West as well, Kelly. Yeah, and maybe to put it differently, it would be hard for the sanctions to deter any invasion yet if we're not clear on exactly what they are. 
Uh, well, certainly there has been a lot telegraphed about what the White House's sanctions package would be. The White House wants Russia to be kicked out of the SWIFT system. Uh, the White House has said in no uncertain terms that if Russia invades the key gas pipeline coming into Germany uh, would never come online. They're also looking at sanctions of Russian oligarchs, banks, sovereign debt, ruble transactions. There's a whole host of things on the table. I think, Kelly, the question is uh, to what extent NATO partners would step up with the same, same severity. Mm -hmm. uh, because they have deeper uh, trading relationships with Russia. And in some cases, you know, we've heard from the administration that other countries might take a more unique approach. Yeah, exactly. Very tricky. Kayla, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Kayla Tausche with all the latest. Joining us now sure. is William Cohen. He's the chairman and CEO of the Cohen Group and former defense secretary under President Clinton. It's great to have you here on the Newsline, sir. And what would you say are the likely steps as we have all heard this Wednesday date uh, for days now being bandied about as a possible invasion? Uh, it's too uh, hard to say. Uh, I, I think it's a mistake to try and pick a date. Um, pre uh, President Putin uh, has a lot of options available. Uh, we know that uh, there are European leaders who are still scheduled to, uh, to meet with him. And frankly, he's already won his point. Uh, he has said in the past that um, we're not listening to him. We're not paying attention to him. Well, the world is listening to him. Uh, all roads in the past two or three weeks have been leading to Moscow. So he, at this point, could say, I've made my point. Uh, I think I'll ease off here and continue the diplomacy. And by the way, that may give me more of an opportunity to uh, plan how I'm going to circumvent uh, the Western uh, imposition of uh, sanctions. Hmm. So he has more options available than anyone else. And I think it's a mistake to say at what date he may move, because it's still possible he may move back. Unlikely, but nonetheless, uh, nothing is impossible until it happens. If we were to say that an invasion does not happen here, do you think Ukraine should pursue NATO membership? No, uh, not at all. Um, NATO is open to every nation, um, but it has a very steep set of stairs to climb. Uh, and so I, I don't think that Ukraine is uh, uh, anywhere near uh, a qualification for, for NATO. You have to have unanimous consent to get into NATO membership. So it's a long way off. I don't think any country should ever say, I give up on freedom. Uh, this is something that uh, every Western nation, to be sure, uh, says is at the heart of our society, the ability to be free from intimidation, from fear, from uh, gangsterism, from fascism, etc. So to tell the, Ukraines, uh, the Ukrainians that uh, they should give up their quest for freedom, uh, I think uh, is something that we wouldn't ask of ourselves. So no, you should never give up the quest for freedom. And frankly, we should try to persuade uh, the Russians that, hey, look what the Ukrainians are doing. You could have some of this as well, but you're living in a, a kleptocracy and under the, uh, the, the roof and the jail uh, of the Russians. The net result here uh, for most investors and, and people in the U.S. is if nothing happens, they're going to ignore the situation. You know, it basically just falls off of the radar. Do you think that's right? I, I don't think it will fall off the radar. Uh, I don't think that this has just been a training exercise by, by the Russians. I think what Putin is saying is, I can do this, and I will do this unless uh, certain guarantees are made to me. But he's asking the impossible. He's saying, guarantee to me that, that Ukraine will never be free, will never enjoy Western freedom, because freedom is a threat to my existence. Freedom is a threat 
uh, to the Russian people, they'll see that I've been ripping them off. The oligarchs have been ripping them off for billions, if not trillions of dollars. So that is what uh, is, is frightening to uh, to Putin. It's almost a line out of the uh, Wall Street movie uh, with the gecko uh, <laughs> saying, look, if you stop, uh, uh, if you stop lying about me, I'll stop telling you the truth about you. What the West has to do is to continue to engage in an information warfare that we tell the people in Russia and those countries that are under the heel and boot of, uh, of uh, imperialism or fascism uh, or simply you know, living in a totalitarian state that it's natural for you to want to be free and you should always look to the United States and the West as an example. But unfortunately, those in Russia, those in China say democracy is dying. Uh, it is nearly dead, and look how it is yeah. so divided. They can't make decisions, and therefore you need to have strong leadership. And so we're actually offering you uh, a method of organizational principles that will give you safety, security, uh, and stability. Mm -hmm. You don't get that in the West. It's too chaotic. So there's a real challenge going on on a geopolitical uh, basis about which system creates the most freedom, the most wealth, the most prosperity uh, and uh, security. Well so said. That will take place. William Cohen, thanks for your time. We appreciate it today. Anytime. Thank William you. Cohen with the Cohen Group. Still ahead, we're tracking the defense stocks with some of the biggest names less than 5% off their highs. Are they a reliable place to go in this market or too dicey of a bet right now? We'll explore in a moment. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. It's time for Earnings Exchange, where we give you the action, the story, and the trade on three stocks about to report. And we're going to start with an $11 billion meme stock reporting today. Avis shares popped more than 100% after that last quarterly report in November as a short squeeze drove shares to all-time highs. Well, we're down more than 60% from those levels. Phil LeBeau has the story on Avis for us. And Craig Johnson has our trades today. He's chief market strategy, uh, technician, I should say, at Piper Sandler. Welcome to you both. Phil, Avis, what are you watching? Well, I think the thing people will be focused on, two things, really. One, does Avis give guidance for what they expect for the rest of 2022? And the analysts are split on this. Some of them saying, look, I don't think they're going to give guidance because there's a number of variables that they just can't predict at this point. And two, what do they say about acquisition costs? Remember, typically the rental car firms, they will defleet third quarter into fourth quarter. Well, there really wasn't a defleeting going on because they had done so much of that during the pandemic. They're still building up their fleets, Kelly. So what do they say about their vehicle acquisition costs? And that might be some indication of what we can expect, at least as we head into the summer season, which is expected to be, by the way, a very active and busy summer season in terms of travel and the rental car companies. Yeah, absolutely. Craig, you are a buyer here of Avis. Is that right? 
Kelly, that's absolutely correct. So if you take a look at the chart here, it's been a pretty consistent chart. We've been up and to the right. We pulled back, retested this longer-term uptrend support line that's been intact going all the way back to uh, the pandemic lows. I'd also just make the observation that if this stock can clear this kind of 50-day moving average in here, we think that there's potentially 20%, 30% upside from these levels back up to this sort of 225, 250 level. Hmm. And if you look back at the earnings reports, uh, clearly eight straight quarters in a row with revisions coming down into the print. It's been a pretty interesting stock, and we think this is one we want to definitely buy into the print. Real quickly, Phil, how has being a meme stock changed Avis if it has at all? I'm not sure it has changed them in terms of, look, how they operate as a company. I think that they are taking the approach of trying to convince investors that they, first of all, they got past the pandemic and they have a, a business plan that is set up post-pandemic. And I think that's the main focus right now. You'll also see some attention paid to what they say about acquiring and adding EVs into the fleet. That's going to get some attention on the yeah. headlines. But the real focus is how are they prepared for the summer when we see a surge in travel? All right. We'll watch those levels that Craig mentioned. Phil, thank you very much. And we'll move along to Marriott reporting before the bell tomorrow, how they've handled Omicron and whether demand for business travel and conferences is bouncing back. Dom Chu standing by with the story on Marriott. Dom? All right, that's that's the key, right? Like like with this Expedia last week, Kelly, you could argue that the Marriott story is one of great expectations. After all, it was Expedia, like just Marriott, one of the two S&P 500 travel-related companies that hit record highs just a day ago. As for what the earnings expectations are, the street's looking for roughly around a dollar per share, pretty even number there, roughly $4 billion in revenues. But like all the other travel stocks, this is really about travel demand. Yes, the positive momentum is already there for the leisure side of things, has been there for about a year, year and a half at this point, the positive pickup. But perhaps more importantly, the return of the business traveler. And you've got a lot of brands, right? Marriott, we know about, Weston, we know about, but Renaissance, Sheraton, some of the other more travel-oriented business brands are ones to watch. The options market, by the way, is currently pricing in a roughly five plus percent move in the stock, higher or lower on the heels of this report tomorrow morning before the opening bell. Now, just to give you some context, Kel, over the last eight quarterly reports for Marriott, the stock has traded positively half the time. So a coin toss over the last eight. The average move up or down over those eight earnings reports has been 2.7 percent in either direction. So you could say traders are possibly anticipating a lot more volatility, almost twice as much volatility as we've seen over the last two years. Kelly. Yeah, but a stalwart uh, performer lately. And Craig, you like Avis, but you really like Marriott. Favorite of the two here is definitely Marriott. So what we're seeing here with this chart is we're just starting to break out of a nice consolidation range after clearing those resistance off of the 19 highs in here. Both the momentum indicators that we've been looking at are confirming the breakout along with the relative strength. And as we showed here in the panel, too, on that chart that you can see Marriott is outperforming the S&P 500. So picking up nice relative strength, and that's important for a lot of portfolio managers and like it a lot and would be buying it again here at these levels. All right. Let's move along from two reopening winners to one that's been more of a struggle. Tim Hortons and Burger King parent company Restaurant Brands reports results tomorrow. We'll get a window into pricing power and labor shortages and the tight margin fast food industry. Their shares are down about 5% to start off the year, about 20% below their recent highs. Kate Rogers has the story today. Hi, Kate. 
Hey, Kelly, well, you mentioned this is the parent of Burger King, Tim Hortons, Popeyes, along with the recently acquired Firehouse subs. So Piper Sandler notes that while Popeyes is an outperformer, BK and Tim's tend to underperform. And the category at large, of course, in fast food is very competitive. So the key things to watch here will be pricing power again and labor. The model for the company is highly franchised. So are these franchisees seeing broader labor challenges and how are they combating those? Last quarter, we saw labor issues weigh on the company with reduced hours. One example that was given by the company's CEO, Jose Sill, about 40% of Popeyes had closed dining rooms and shortened hours due to those ongoing labor challenges. And then finally, how are price hikes being evaluated? Are they being passed on to the consumer? So far, we've heard from Yum, McDonald's, and Chipotle that they've been able to do this. I'll be curious to hear what Restaurant Brand says tomorrow morning about that. Absolutely. And Craig, this one, it looks like you're not in any hurry to pick it up here. No hurry. Well, it does technically look like kind of a double bottom here on the charts. You can see that uh, we really need to get a close above about 60.75 to really confirm for us on the charts that we've got a trend change here really starting to uh, unfold. Uh, I'd pass on this one at this point in time. And I think there's better places uh, to be like Marriott and also Davis. Yeah. Kate, what about the chicken sandwich that was such a cult hit? What was that going on maybe a year ago? Yeah, and that continues, Kelly. That's been important. Remember, McDonald's semi-recently rolled out their big chicken sandwich platform. So Popeye's is still very much in the mix on that. And as mentioned, that's why that one part of the business does tend to outperform. But if the labor challenges are there and they can't keep the dining rooms open or hours are shortened, they can't get to the customers, how does that wind up shaking out in the earnings? Sure. And Craig, we've seen that, you know, it's not all names in this space. If you consider Chipotle part of that, it's really quick serve. It's a whole other category of its own practically. Um, but where else do you see strength if people want it? where do I go in this uh, sector of the market? Well, to be inside this sector, again, I would come back to some of these reopening names. The restaurants still have been a bit soft and a bit challenging in here at this point in time. But we're neutral, the consumer cyclical sector at this point in time. And where we really want to be is we really want to be overweight energy, financials, and some of the larger cap tech names, to be honest with you. Yeah. I've It feels like sort of an inflation thing, you know, pricing power and all the rest of it, as much as it is reopening right now. Craig, it's been great to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Craig Johnson from Piper Sandler. Kate Rogers all over it for us. We appreciate it, Kate, as always. And still ahead, the latest on inflation and the supply chain from the CEO of PGA Tour Superstore. Dick Sullivan checks in. He says business is booming and high prices aren't keeping people away from golf. Welcome back, everybody. We're well off the lows, but the Dow and the S&P are negative again as we've bounced around this afternoon. The Nasdaq's still up 38. Yields reversing Friday's drop lower and are now back above the 2% mark. We're watching that closely, of course, just a hair over that level right now. And also keeping our eyes on energy. Even though oil just turned positive midday, the sector is still one of the worst performers, in fact, the worst performer, down nearly 3% with every member of the group lower. You can see from Marathon, for instance, is down almost 5%. Let's get to Frank Holland now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Frank. Hey there, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Texas Attorney General uh, Ken Paxton is suing Meta's Facebook. He claims the social media giant violated state privacy protections with its now discontinued facial recognition tech. Paxton is reportedly seeking billions of dollars in damages. Meta says those Texas charges are without merit and the company will defend itself vigorously. Meta says it shut down its facial recognition system last year and that users were always provided with notices and with controls. In Georgia, a jury has been seated for the hate crimes trial of three white men convicted of murdering Ahmad Arbery. The judges told attorneys to be ready to make their opening statements later today. And over to Canada, the most populous province is ending vaccination requirements to enter many public indoor spaces. 
Ontario Premier Doug Ford says the move is not because of protest in Ottawa at the border with the U.S. Instead, Ford says because he's doing it because it's now safe enough to do so. And on the news, what it takes to make sure there are enough flowers for this Valentine's Day. Tune into my report on how UPS moves thousands of tons of flowers just in time for the holiday. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. And Kelly, there's actually a, a hot uh, color of rose this year besides red. Red's always Ooh. the most popular. But there's also another hot color we're going to tell you tonight. No, tell me now, please, please. You Can I, do, should I spoil it? Oh, no, you know what? Probably not. <laughs> we'll just leave that as a tease for everyone, including myself, to tune in. Frank, thank you very much. Coming up with all the volatility we've seen this year, it might be hard to believe, but we're only about a percent and a half from where we were in the market six months ago. We'll look at the market stagnation ahead. As we head to break, take a look at some of the names associated with crypto. Getting a boost today. Coinbase up one and a half percent block Robinhood micro strategy. Remember, we, they flooded the zone with those crypto ads at the Super Bowl last night. The Crypto Bowl, as some are calling it. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. It's been a pretty crazy market over the past six months, but you wouldn't know it if you just woke up and checked the S&P price level now versus where it was half a year ago. It's basically in the same spot. Mike Santoli is here now with more. Mike? Yeah, Kelly, just a, a six-week pullback, but it's taken us back to where the S&P 500 first reached, actually more like July, a little over six months ago. Over that period, though, I think you could argue that this kind of stagnation, this reset that we've seen, uh, has done some good on a longer-term basis. One, valuation excesses have eased back. Uh, we had a stock market trading around 22 times forward earnings back then. Now it's around 19 and a half. Still not cheap, still not back to where we were before the pandemic, but definitely more moderate. Also, over that period of time, when the S&P has been virtually flat, it has outperformed the NASDAQ 100 by five percentage points. So if you thought the market was too caught up with mega cap tech back then, it's somewhat less so right now. Also fair to say that the market's been kind of stress tested by this radical rethinking of where uh, the Fed is going to end up going to and what bond yields have done, right? We were at 1.3 on the 10 years six months ago. Now we're at 2%. The two-year note has gone flying from, you know, almost nothing up above 1.5%. So I think all those things together tell you it's somewhat typical of these other sideways choppy periods we've had leading up to an initial Fed rate hike. It doesn't mean all the damage has already been done. It doesn't mean that we're going to escape unscathed from here. But I do think that that tells you these kind of opposing currents that sometimes come into play when we get into this mid or perhaps later part of a cycle. Kelly. It's sort of the triumph of the S&P 500, isn't it? Because everyone yeah. who is getting FOMO from not being in crypto and Art K and all the rest of it is now looking at this and going, given everything that's happened, you know, the S&P is still proving that diversification and large caps can work pretty well through a bunch of different environments. That's certainly the case and really was the case last year because you never even got a 5% pullback in the S&P wow. and every single stock in the index was down more at one point or another. So that is true. Now this year, arguably it's becoming a little bit easier, so to speak, to beat the S&P. The equal weighted version is doing better. Uh, obviously financials and energy and other cyclicals have widened out their lead, but that's not to say you're always going to pick the right spot, uh, stocks, even if uh, it's sort of a little more of a right period for, for choosing individual names. Absolutely. Mike, Always good to see you. Thank you, our Mike Santoli. Right, Coming up, hitting record sales and navigating the supply chain just fine. That's according to my next guest, the CEO of PGA Tour Superstore joins us live. And remember, you can catch the show anytime, anywhere by following The Exchange podcast. Search CNBC The Exchange. You get the show. You get conversations with Kelly. I record my newsletters. You get everything. Sign up now. We're back in a moment.
Welcome back. 529 million rounds of golf were played last year. An all-time record as interest in the game has exploded amid the pandemic and the PGA Tour Superstore reaping the benefits. Sales continue hitting records up 80% in the past two years despite supply chain struggles. For more, let's check back in with Dick Sullivan. He is the president and CEO of the PGA Tour Superstore. It's great to have you back. Great to be here, Kelly. Nice so to see you again. I did my channel checks with our golf expert, Dom Chu, and he says there are still shortages and, you know, a little delays sometimes, problems with golf industry in general. How are we today versus where we were, you know, a year or two years ago? Well, the whole world is on back order, as we know. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, we're not, we're not in as bad a shape as many other industries. Um, we've been creative wherever we can be. I use the example all the time that we had 15,000 uh, bulky wedges that came into our stores without grips on them because there was a rubber shortage and we actually put grips on inside of our stores. So wherever we can, you know, we try to accelerate that purchase cycle for the consumer. But, you know, things that might have taken a week or two before could be taking four or five weeks. I don't care, you know, what industry you're in. We're, we're all, you know, seeing some some delays. Yeah, I heard that the rubber grips were a particular problem. So I guess my question from the market's point of view, from a macro point of view is, are these challenges, are we weeks or months away from them working themselves out? Or do you look now into 2023 and see this situation still persisting? Well, I think we're starting to see countries open up like Vietnam. I mean, many manufacturers moved from China to Vietnam years ago. And, you know, Vietnam, I think, was hit harder for, from COVID uh, than other countries. But we're starting to see that loosen up. Um, we're starting to see equipment. We're, we really are you know, we're about 95% of where we want to be from an in-stock standpoint, and we still have plenty of products that, that people can sell. But I think that the most exciting thing that we've seen in the past years is more women coming into the game, Kelly, than, than ever before. It used to be less than 20% of golfers were women. Now we're over 30% of women. So <laughs> our women's apparel business, our women's club business, and, and those are businesses that I think, you know, are so exciting to see grow with beginners growing. I mean, you mentioned the amount of golf rounds that are being played. So we're, we have plenty of inventory, we have plenty of products. We are seeing delays. If you special order anything in life right now, you're going to see a little bit longer delay than normal. Right, exactly. And I know personally, I have several friends who are trying to learn golf or pick it up or take it up now, and I commend them because <laughs> I'm not good at it. So, Well, you, you said that, but the football season is over now, so we need to do something different. It's interesting. There's actually two former Super Bowl quarterbacks in this storm in Atlanta right now. Wow, who? Two former Super Bowl quarterbacks. Cordell Stewart and Matt Ryan wow. uh, from the Pittsburgh Steelers and from the Atlanta Falcons, both here shopping. One's actually getting his, his clubs regripped. Another one's shopping, buying all kinds of apparel to be looking <laughs> good out in the golf course. <laughs> NFL superstars, they're just like you. Um, let me finish then, I guess, just by asking a question. And I don't mean for it you know, to be all about headwinds, but you know, you're in such a unique situation having demand explosion, supply chain bottlenecks. And now I'm going to ask you about kind of wages and staffing. What's the update there is we're starting to see more evidence that people are really getting and asking for higher wages these days. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, our company's owned by Arthur Blank, uh, not only an NFL owner of our Atlanta Falcons uh, football team, but the you know, the founder of Home Depot. And, and Arthur has always had a value of, of paying people, putting people first. And in this case, you know, we increased our minimum wage last year. We've increased our wages overall for our store associates by over 10%, you know, which does counter some of the inflation that we're seeing at roughly 7.5%. So uh, we've been very fortunate. And last I checked, 94% of the associates within this company would refer a friend to come work for a company. So I know there's been lots of challenges in hiring. We've been fortunate. We haven't had those challenges. Obviously, we increased our minimum wage. We compressed and added more you know, increases, pay increases for those around the $15 wage. So 
we've been trying to live our values here. We've always lived those at Home Depot. We're living them here again at PGA Tour Superstore. Yeah, my favorite Arthur Blank anecdote is how he refused to call the headquarters the headquarters. He called it the service center to emphasize yep. that it was to serve everybody That's else. Profit That's margins. We are, store support center. That's yeah, exactly what we exactly. are. We support our stores. Um, real quickly on profit margins. So we know your sales are way up and, and all that. But where are you? Have profit margins increased at all or are they under some pressure? Yeah, I mean, we're privately held, but we've significantly increased our margins. Um, and, you know, we could talk about EBITDA all day long. You know, we've, we've seen with 80% increase in, in sales, when you do work for Arthur Blank, you better have some leverage on the expense <laughs> side as well. But what's, what's great is this year, I mean, we're already seeing on top of 80% increase over the last two years. And some of it's, you know, COVID driven. People are working from home. People are playing golf at five o'clock at night versus being in a train or being in a car at five o'clock. So yeah. that's helped our business for sure. But we're seeing this year over 25% growth again already this year. And over 20% of that is through new customers coming through our doors or tr transactions, meaning our average retails are only up about three or four percent. So it's not all because of inflation. You know, the game is still growing and we're really excited about where we're at at this point. Very interesting. Well, tell those guys to get over to a camera. We can ask them about their favorite Super Bowl ads or something. <laughs> and we need to get you out. No, Kelly, we need to I'm, get you on the tour. I'm truly hopeless. Uh, but I have a great, great respect for those who are very good at it. Dick, thank you so much for your time Thanks today. Again. Dick Thanks Sullivan is care. the CEO and president of the PGA Tour Superstore. Coming up, defense spending is likely to remain strong amid rising geopolitical tensions. And there are certain stocks like this one that are positioned to do well because of that. We have the names next. Welcome back to The Exchange. As tensions between Russia and Ukraine escalate, investors' attention is turning towards the defense sector. Morgan Brennan joins us with more. Morgan? Hey, Kelly. Well, defense stocks are lower today after a Friday afternoon pop, and that's thanks to Russia's top diplomat, Lavrov, calling for more talks. But experts tell me, invasion or not, the changes, this changes the geopolitical dynamic and will boost defense spending internationally among NATO members and other allies, but also stateside. As lawmakers look to fund the 2022 budget, finally, hopefully in March, and as a 2023 budget request from the president is expected as soon as April, that could raise defense levels even higher. Analysts say near term threat of conflict is a positive for munitions and missile makers like Raytheon, which produces the Stinger anti-aircraft missile system and Javelin anti-tank missiles with Lockheed Martin. And actually, we are already seeing shipments to Ukraine longer term. General Dynamics could benefit as Poland looks to buy 250 Abrams tanks, a process that may now accelerate. And more demand potentially for fighter jets like Lockheed's F-35, Boeing's F-15, plus missile defense systems like Raytheon's Patriot. Jeffries also noting this could support U.S. Army priorities and its modernization programs, with GD and L3 Harris most exposed there. And speaking of missiles... Something else for investors to watch today, another big development that is impacting the sector. Lockheed officially scrapping its deal for rocket and missile engine maker Aerojet Rocketdyne after the FTC sued to block that $4.4 billion acquisition. Aerojet Rocketdyne shares are lower. They're down about 6% today, Kelly. Morgan, thank you so much. Again, this has been such a tough environment to get deals done. Our Morgan mm -hmm. Brennan reporting as we watch stocks head towards session lows on some concern about this situation. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.